I invite you to uh, open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, that text that we just had read for us. Um, if you have your Bible, great. Uh, if you need one to use, you should find one down in one of the chair racks around you. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, I don't know if you've ever thought much about it or not, but uh, for me, it's fascinating how uh, the New Testament begins with a particularly difficult section of text to read. Uh, Matthew essentially front loads his document with a litany of strange, obscure, and really hard to pronounce names. And I want to thank Michelle for reading that for us because uh, (laughs) you can clap. uh, I didn't necessarily want to have to do it. So uh, I'm kind of a genealogical chicken. Uh, It takes a lot of guts to read that kind of stuff in public. So I appreciate her doing it for me. But reading this type of text isn't just the issue. Actually paying attention. Uh, is even more the challenge, right? I mean, seriously, listening to a genealogy being read isn't the most captivating thing we do on a Sunday morning together. Uh, Once Michelle got to uh, verse 4 and a minute dab, I'm guessing some of us checked out for a few seconds. I think I may have drifted off for a couple myself, but here's the deal. Most of us in this room, I assume, uh, uh, recognize and affirm the overall inspiration of Scripture. And yet some of us may wonder how divinely inspired Matthew was Uh, really, when he recorded this genealogy. Some of that reaction is cultural because while interest in genealogies is a growing phenomenon, uh, it's still a relatively new thing for us in America. In fact, genealogy, uh, the word, our English word genealogy, by the way, comes from two Greek terms, genea meaning generation, logos meaning knowledge or study. So literally the word means generational knowledge or generational study. And genealogy was only first recognized as a professional field of study in 1964. Uh, And it's only been in the last uh, few years that it's actually gained some cultural interest. This year alone, in 2012, Ancestry.com, which is just one of uh, of a number of online tools, uh, Ancestry.com will net about $500 million uh, helping people study their family lineage. For me, I've never really been that interested in my ancestry, although a cousin of mine just recently did a study uh, and sent it to me that shows that one side of my family comes from a guy named Francisco, in northern France in the 1600s. Uh, but for the most part, I haven't really thought much about all that. Of course, if uh, suddenly I were to read in the Chicago Trib uh, about a French billionaire named Francisco dying and looking for air, an heir, I, I get interested in genealogy pretty quickly. But the possibility of, of inheritance isn't, I mean, a pretty well handsomely bald billionaire. I mean, you know, I think there could be a connection. Um, But the possibility of inheritance isn't really what's driving our our growing cultural interest in genealogy. What is? Historians and sociologists suggest that um, uh, as Americans, we now live in a period of what they label a postmodern malaise, a sort of melancholy characterized by a nagging sense of alienation, loss, aimlessness, loneliness, and guilt. Our lives are, are complicated. Our families are often fragmented. And so most, people, uh, most people's interest in genealogy seems uh, motivated by a desire to reconnect, you know, to find um, our place in, in the family, in the culture, in society, to establish some grounding of ourselves in human history, perhaps revealing a true significance and clarity of purpose to our existence. The hope is if we can understand our past, uh, maybe we'll better understand who we are right now in the present and uh, figure out why we're here and where we're headed in the future. And so genealogy is growing in popularity. But in terms of shared interests, I mean, let's face it, we don't really care that much about somebody else's genealogies. 
right, about yours or mine, unless it somehow affects us directly. In other words, um, if I gave you that genealogy my cousin did, you guys wouldn't be interested in reading through that unless you thought it connected to you in some meaningful way. Otherwise, you just kind of toss it out. And that's fine because I've tossed yours out too. Uh, studying someone else's genealogy is like watching paint dry. You know, it's pretty boring unless in some way it connects uh, and has these personal implications for us. And I think that's why we tend to ignore the first 16 verses of Matthew because even though we affirm the inspiration of Scripture and uh, uh, we're, we're on board with that, our initial, re- our, th- our initial thought is, hey, you know, this, this genealogy is nice and everything of Jesus, but it doesn't really mean much to me. Well, I'd like to, uh, in the next few minutes, try and prove the opposite to you and show how indeed this genealogy is significant uh, for you, for me, for all of us, especially at Christmas. You know, I'll give it to you. It does seem like nothing but a bunch of hard-to-pronounce names linked together. But if you stop and you think through it and you look deeply into the text, what begins to emerge is an incredible history that spans most of the biblical narrative, uh, revealing some amazing truth that do, in fact, apply to and directly impact each of us. Things that, again, are especially relevant during the Advent season. So here are some, uh, here are some things this genealogy tells us. First of all, it tells us that the arrival or the advent of Jesus is grounded in history. I don't know if any, any of you have seen this uh, on the bookshelves around in stores, but Life Books just published uh, in October, just, so just a few weeks ago, a new uh, fully illustrated biography of Jesus. Uh, anyone seen this? Uh, I actually picked up a copy this week, was reading through, and it's pretty well done. Although I'm not a big fan of the front cover, I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't that pale and he didn't have that fan-like thing around his head, but uh, so be it. I I think the book actually does a good job at presenting uh, Jesus. In fact, in the opening pages of the book, the editors state their purpose. They write, in this life book, in words and pictures, is a story of Jesus of Nazareth presented with historical context. What came before, what Jesus meant in his time, what he means in ours today. In other words, uh, the book starts off by establishing the historical context, the historical reality of Jesus' life. Well, if you think about it, that's exactly the same thing that that Matthew does in his biography, except without the illustrations, right? Keep in mind, Matthew doesn't open his document by writing once upon a time. I mean, that's how fairy tales and myths and good fiction begin. At the most, a once upon a time kind of uh, book indicates that the narrative to follow um, is, is a nice, maybe even a plausible story, but it's not, it's not something that actually occurred. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew uh, doesn't open with that kind of creative, uh, artistic prose. He was a writer, not a, he, was a, he wasn't, wasn't a writer, he was a witness. And uh, he simply says, what I'm about to tell you is fact, not fiction. The birth, the life, the ministry, the, the message of Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, is a, is a recorded reality. And therefore, like, just like every single one of us, Jesus had a genealogy uh, that put him at a specific uh, time in a specific place within a lineage, within a family, within a culture, within a society, within human history. And because that's true, the genealogy also tells us that the arrival of Jesus is, is good news, not, not just good advice. And there's a huge difference. Advice is all about counsel. It's a recommendation given on what a person should do. But news, by definition, is a report on what has been done. Advice urges us to make something happen. News Uh, demands we recognize that something has happened and it prompts us to respond to that reality. Think of it this way. In Luke's uh, biographical account, 
of Jesus's arrival, he records how angels, literally messengers of God, that's what the word in the, in the Greek means, that angels appeared in the sky just outside Bethlehem for what uh, purpose? Uh, did those angels, those supernatural beings offer good advice? Did they say, hey, here's what we think you people on earth should do? Or did they report news to the world on what had already been done? Well, it was news, right? And they said it was good news for everybody, for all people. News of the Savior who had been born. Deity in the flesh come to rescue humanity. I, I, I mention all this because it's important for us to understand that this is why Christmas is not just about how to be nicer people uh, trying to live better lives. The Christmas account simply cannot be a, an ancient antidote or fable intended to advise and inspire human achievement. If that were the case, what, what would the Christmas story be advising us and inspiring us to do? Uh, go out and be shepherds, uh, birth our kids outdoors, put them in feeding troughs, you know, wrap, them, uh, wrap infants in swaddling clothes, whatever those really are. Uh, what is it telling us to do? And maybe it's just me, but if Christmas is some kind of once-upon-a-time fairy tale, what does it really mean? And how on earth can a fairy tale change the course of history? But you see, it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. The Christmas account is grounded in history. It's news of what has been done for us. A Savior has been born to rescue us. Now, I, I realize I bring this up an awful lot. But I do it because I think it's really important for us to understand that in all other religions, when there's talk about eternal life or eternal rescue or eternal salvation, the talk is more about advice than anything else. Advice on what to do more of or what to do less of. Advice on how to perform better. Advice on how to be, how to be a good enough person to earn God's love and acceptance through religious rites and rituals and regulations. But the message of biblical Christianity is completely different. A salvation is not about good advice. It's about good news. News of deity come in the flesh to rescue humanity and give us life everlasting. News that says you cannot earn your way to heaven. Uh, getting there is, is purely a matter of grace. And make no mistake about it. The religions of the world collectively assert the same thing, that we've got to work and be good enough to get to God. But Christianity alone says we cannot be good enough to get to God, and so God came down to us. And that's what makes it radically different. From, all, from the rest of the pack, basically, from all other religions. All other founders of religion say, I have come to advise you on the way to heaven. But Jesus came and said, I am the way to heaven. Biblical Christianity is not some religious system of self-improvement, you know, some highly developed program on how to be a better person. Obviously, Christianity carries practical implications on how to live good, safe, healthy, productive lives. But at its core, it's not about us adopting a highly regulated moral ethic based on religious advice. Christianity is about news of the supernatural, of the Savior Jesus who has come to graciously give us life. And if that's true, if that's true, then it, that is indeed good news. The question for us is, do we believe it? Do you believe that, that deity took on flesh and blood, that Jesus, Jesus lived, taught, suffered, died, and rose from the grave, thus changing history. Do you believe it? If so, then all the other stuff falls into place, you see. Uh, all the other things that Christianity says, about, Christianity says about what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's, what's wise and unwise, what's healthy and unhealthy, it all makes sense. If it's not true, then all of it's just nonsense. And if you reject it, that's fine. 
But in my opinion, it is equally as nonsensical to celebrate something you don't really believe in. So what it comes down to is that this genealogy in Matthew begs the question. It, it, it really forces a decision. It tells us that the arrival, the birth of Jesus is grounded in history and is all about the good news of rescue that comes by way of the grace of God. Here's something else it tells us. It tells us that Jesus' arrival inverts or turns upside down the values of our world. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, in the ancient Near East, um, your genealogy was basically your resume. Uh, it was like your ticket to success because it revealed your pedigree. It, um, it told the story of your family, your tribe, your clan, and so declaring one's lineage was basically how a person would introduce him or herself to others or recommend themselves to others. They would say, I am Obed, son of Boaz, or, you know, I am Ray, son of Thor, which would be really pretty cool to say. Uh, although, you know, that sounds really cool, but it's not true. Uh, speaking of truth, given the fact that human nature doesn't change, just as we in our culture often fudge a little on our resumes, men and women in the ancient world did the same exact thing. You know, they might, in order to serve their own purpose, they might selectively include or, or exclude things that would make them look, look better. Uh, for us, in today's culture, uh, it might play out something like this. Let's say, let's say you go off to a university or to a college, and you get there and you, you, you flunk out. And so you eventually go back to school, you go to college B, and then you drop out. And then you go to college C, and you graduate, you make it to grad school and seminary, you get to be, uh, you get a master's degree, an MDiv, you, you go to be a youth pastor, end up a, a senior pastor in the suburbs of uh, Chicago. This is purely hypothetical, mind you. And <laughs> well, you're probably not going to include college A and B on your resume, you know, the flunk out, drop out part. You're, you're, you're probably going to be selective. You know, you're going to leave out those things that don't look so good. And this happened a lot in the, in the ancient world. For example, in the first century, Herod the Great uh, was a ruler who did, this kind of, who did this kind of thing only to the extreme. I mean, he purged not only names out of lists, but he purged, literally killed people, took, took them out of the genealogy. People, fam even family members that he didn't like very much, he didn't want to be associated with, he just got rid of them. But Jesus does the very opposite. His genealogy, his resume, if you will, is quite unique. Uh, why is that? Well, for one, it includes women. In the ancient Near Eastern world, that was unheard of. Lineage was described by way of men, fathers and sons. In terms of gender, you know, women were outsiders when it came to this kind of stuff. And yet Jesus' genealogy has five women listed. Most of them weren't even Jewish. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, they were all Gentiles. Canaanites, Moabites, uh, people considered spiritually unclean. They weren't only gender outsiders, they were racial and religious outsiders. But Jesus' genealogy doesn't stop there. It includes moral outsiders. Um, this is important. In the list, note this, Matthew includes some pretty messed up, twisted, nasty, violent, immoral men and women. Basically says Jesus descended from all these people. This is his family lineage. You think about it. In verse 2, we're, talk, we're told of Abraham. You know, Abraham may have been the father of a nation, but he was often unfaithful, uh, deceitful, uh, and so were his, were his sons. Uh, there, we have Tamar listed. She was a Gentile who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to trick her widowed father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. Well, it worked. She got pregnant, had a son named Zerah. And although Jesus actually descended through Judah's legitimate son, Perez, not Zerah, in verse 3, everybody's mentioned. Why? 
It's so the reader will be reminded of this incredible, illicit, and convoluted story of sexual immorality and incest. And I'll tell you what, man, if, if the Cohen brothers or Quentin Tarantino ever made a movie of this kind of stuff, they, they'd make a mint. It's the kind of stuff that, that the drama is made out of. And here we have, we have these people listed. We have Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute. Verse 5, we have Rahab, who actually was one in Jericho. And all of these women, all of these men are included in the genealogy. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, as I read through the list, whenever I read through it, I, I finally get to verse 6 where David, King David is mentioned, and I have this reaction like, okay, finally, we've got somebody who belongs in the list, you know, somebody of royalty, somebody of respect. This is the kind of person you want on your resume. But then, but then you read the end of verse 6 that says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And that's kind of weird. You know, why don't we get her name? And who was Uriah? And you may or may not remember the, the, the account, but Uriah was one of David's best warriors. Although he was a Gentile, he was committed to David. And when David's life was threatened, it was Uriah, along with a, an elite fighting force that protected David. They risked their lives for him. In fact, Uriah wasn't only a warrior. He was one of David's closest and trusted friends. David was attracted to Uriah, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He saw her. He liked her. He watched her. He wanted her. And so he had Uriah killed. He takes Bathsheba as his own, and she gave birth to Solomon. And so Matthew appropriately lists her, but intentionally leaves out her name, not as a slam on Bathsheba, but as a slam on David, who was a selfish, conniving, betraying, adulterer, and murderer. Are you getting the picture here, the big picture? For all intents and purposes, this list represents a bunch of racial, religious, and moral outsiders. Liars, cheaters, greedy, incestuous, lustful, promiscuous, adulterers and murderers, messed up, twisted, imperfect men and women, all admittedly part of Jesus' lineage. And keep this in mind, the law of Moses precluded such sinful people from the presence of God, yet here they are. Here they are. There's no fudging on the resume. I mean, we all look, we all have skeletons in our genealogical closets. And we're talking about family, our tendency is to leave out the less desirables, right? Uh, those who make us look bad. But here it's like Jesus takes ownership of these, of these people. He embraces them. And why is that important to note? It's important because on one hand you have all these men and women who fall far short of the perfection demanded by the law of Moses and who by all rights should be uh, legally, justly excluded from the presence of God, yet they are openly included in the genealogy. Well, let me put it this way. The genealogy tells us about God's grace. Yeah? right? I mean, clearly it underscores the fact of human depravity, yet at the same time it reveals and communicates in uncertain terms God's willingness to extend mercy and forgiveness. His grace, His unmerited favor is available to everyone and anyone, and we all desperately need it. Again, think about David. Uh, we know from hist history that he had a lot going for him. I mean, we know that he was handsome, he was smart, he was educated, he was artistically gifted, he was brave, he was religious, uh, he was rich, he was a king, not a peasant. But if his life and experience tells us anything, it tells us that even the best people are capable of doing the worst. Uh, when writing a commentary on the, the genealogy of Matthew, I, I like how uh, theologian Frederick Dale Brunner puts it. He writes, one gets the impression Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable ancestors of Jesus available to insert them into his record, and so it seems to preach the gospel, the good news. 
that God can overcome and forgive sin and can use soiled but repentant persons for his great purposes in history. Now that's how a brilliant theologian explains it. Here's my, here's my personal Ray K. summary, okay? This genealogy tells us that even the best among us need God's grace and not even the worst among us are deprived of it. That's the implication of the genealogy. That in Jesus, kings and prostitutes are equal. Equal. Male and female, equal. The rich and poor, equal. Jew and Gentile, equal. Religious and pagan, equal. Moral and immoral, equal. We're all equally in need of God's grace. So let's just admit it. There's no more reason to pretend. There's no more pressure to perform. There's no cause to hide. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, where you're from, what you've done. God's grace is available to you. How is it available? Well, the genealogy tells that as well. It it explains at the end, telling us in verse 16, that God's grace comes by way of Jesus, who is the Messiah or the Christ. The actual Greek term that's used here is the the Greek term Christos or Christ. Uh, It literally means the anointed one, and by extension it it meant king. Uh, It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. And just for the record, uh, Messiah... Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. It wasn't like Joseph and Mary Messiah gave birth to Jesus Messiah or Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, Messiah in the Hebrew, Christ in the Greek represented the ancient title given to the divine Savior who God promised to send to rescue people from their sins. The Savior whom the prophet Micah 700 years beforehand said would be born in Bethlehem. Micah, speaking on behalf of God, said, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is the Savior the prophet Isaiah said would be born to a virgin. Again, 700 years before it happened, Isaiah declared, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, God's anointed was born to do what neither prophets, priests, or kings before him could do. To live the life we could never live. And to pay the price we cannot pay. And to gift us uh, what we cannot earn. Life everlasting. You know, like every year, every season, Christmas season, as we approach the holiday, uh, here, here's my concern for us. That my concern is that the facts of Jesus' arrival... You know, sung in carols and recited by kids in church programs and illustrated on holiday cards and laid out in creche scenes on lawns. The facts have become so familiar to us that it's easy to miss the reality and the true message of the season. And um, I realize starting Advent by focusing on a genealogy is a bit unusual, but ultimately, you think about it, think about it, it makes sense, right? Hopefully, this often overlooked and skipped over, forgotten record of Jesus' lineage will, will serve to awaken us to the reality of who he is and what he's done, of how his arrival is, is no once upon a time fairy tale, but a world-changing uh, event grounded in human history. I mean, call it what you will, his birth, his coming, his advent, his arrival, it has turned the world upside down. It has, for he brings to us not good advice, but good news. News of God's love and grace. News that relieves us from, of, from the pressure to perform and the guilt that, that results when we fail. News that deity has come in the flesh to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. News 
not of religion, but, uh, or, or irreligion for that matter, but something altogether different. News of the Savior who has arrived. Born to you, born to me, born to all people. He is Jesus, who is called Messiah, the Christ. So make no mistake about it. You know, when it comes to Advent and the true meaning of Christmas, his genealogy, it means everything to all of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that the coming of Jesus, his arrival on earth, has indeed changed the course um, not, a, not just of individuals who are around him or even of his own community or culture, but it has changed, uh, it has changed our world. There's no denying it. There's no denying the historical reality of that birth. And so, Lord, we're faced with the question of Christmas, and that is not do we believe Jesus lived and died. History tells us he did. But do we believe who he claimed to be? God in the flesh come to rescue humanity. Pray as we we move deeper into the season of Advent, Lord, that question uh, would be answered by each and every one of us. And that we'd each come to acknowledge this Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ, this Savior, as our own. It's in his name we pray. Amen.